Well, good morning again. If this is your first time with us, my name is Clint. I'm a pastor here at Gospel Church, and uh, we're glad that you're here to worship the Lord with us. If you need translation into Russian today, uh, Sasha was over there a moment ago. Oh, he's there. He's there behind the screen, so you can uh, avail yourself of that if needed. Well, when you think about a holy person, when you think about someone who is holy, what words or what images come to your mind? You know, if you do a Google image search for a holy person, uh, you'll find a lot of pictures of an old man with a long beard, typically sitting on the floor. He looks different. He looks unique, right? But is that really what a holy person looks like? An old man with a long beard sitting on the floor. Is that holiness? What does holiness in our lives actually look like? Well, last week I started a new sermon series on the book of 1 Peter. This letter was written uh, by Peter, an, one of the 12 apostles of Christ, uh, to Christians who were spread out all throughout the, the Roman Empire, Christians who were experiencing hard trials and suffering. And this morning we're going to continue in chapter 1, in which Peter is going to describe what a holy life looks like, the things that we need to do. So we're going to start with verse 13. So look at me at verse 13. We have the text on the screen. But I'm actually only going to read the first word of verse 13. Peter says, therefore. Now, as the saying goes, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to check and see what it's there for. The word therefore means for this reason. The word therefore means because this is true. So Peter is connecting what he's about to say with what he has already said before. So what has Peter already said in chapter 1? We looked at this last week, but let's read again chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inherit an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So in the beginning of chapter 1, Peter tells the believers about the glory of their salvation in Christ, how because of God's great mercy, they have uh, a living hope in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. They have a spiritual inheritance that is guaranteed and will never expire in Christ. They can rejoice in the trials of life because God is growing them. He's refining them in their faith. In other words, the beginning of chapter 1 is all about knowing. 
It's all about understanding that God saved us and caused us to be born again in Christ. It's about realizing God's goodness and grace towards us. It's remembering that he saved us, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. So the beginning of chapter 1 is all about knowing. And that's what brings us to the word, therefore, in verse 13. Peter is saying, because, of all, because all these glorious realities are true, now go live it out. And that leads me to my first point this morning. And that is, doing comes after knowing. Doing comes after knowing. Don't put the doing before the knowing. Put the doing after the knowing. I've told this story many times before, but whenever I go to Ikea and, and I buy some furniture, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the item, I'll bring it home, and of course, you need to put it together. It comes with instructions. And in the beginning, I use the instructions. I start to, to put it together, but eventually I get to this point of just saying, I can do this. This is so simple. I can build this myself. I don't need these instructions. And I start to, to build it on my own. I, let's say, put the doing before the, know, the knowing. But the same thing happens every time. I get to the end only to realize I missed some important step. Maybe I used the wrong screw or one of the pieces was, was backwards. So you know what I have to do? I have to take everything apart. I have to go all the way back to the beginning. Only this time, I use the instructions until the whole piece of furniture is built. The second time, I put the knowing before the doing, and when I did that, the building is always a success. In the Bible, we see again and again that the knowing comes before doing. Typically in the New Testament, the letters written to churches begin with theology, and then they talk about how to apply that to our lives. Knowing comes before the doing. You know, but sometimes we get this backwards. We put doing before knowing, and that might work for a little while, but in the end, just like with my IKEA furniture, it fails, and we have to go back and restart again. Don't put the doing before the knowing. Put the doing after the knowing. As we see here in 1 Peter, the Christian life flows out of God's work in our hearts in salvation. So the gospel isn't something that we just need for salvation. No, we need the gospel as well for sanctification. We apply the gospel to all aspects of, uh, aspects of our life, not only salvation. Let me tell you why I think this is so important. So let's say a believer feels stuck in some kind of sin. He or she hates the sin. They don't want to do it. They wish they didn't do it, and they want to change. And the problem, they think, is their effort. The problem, they think, is they're not doing enough, that they're not trying enough. So what do they do? They try harder. They have success for a little while, but then the sin comes back. They're discouraged again, so the next time they even try more harder. They have success for a little while, but the sin comes back. The cycle goes on and on and on, but the sin keeps coming back. And eventually... They get tired, and they give up. They say, nothing I do ever works. Now, do you think that those people had a doing problem? Do you think that their effort was not enough? 
I would say no. I think that they tried their best. In my opinion, the reason they are stuck isn't because of doing. Rather, it's because of not knowing. They're putting the doing before the knowing. They're attempting to live the Christian life without the therefore that we see in verse 13. The gospel doesn't teach us to try harder in our own power. The gospel takes us back to the cross. It teaches us that no matter how hard we try, we can't overcome sin ourselves. It's Jesus who gives us victory. It's his death and resurrection that give us victory over sin. Paul teaches the same thing in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Look at those verses with me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And those verses, Paul begins with salvation, says it's grace through faith in Christ. We couldn't keep the law perfectly, so God sent his only son, Jesus, who came not to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. He went to the cross, paid the penalty, laid down his life, died, was buried, rose again, and by trusting in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. How? Paul says, by grace. Paul says it wasn't anything that we did. We didn't contribute to the process. We can't boast about it. We can't brag about our role. It wasn't a me thing. It was a God thing. Jesus did all the work. We are simply called to trust and believe him. So in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us how salvation works. It's all about the knowing. But verse 10 tells us about the doing, how to live that out. Verse 10 tells us that God has prepared many things in advance for you and I to do. But the order is so important. It's the knowing, then the doing. It's salvation, then the commands. It's believing the gospel and then applying the gospel. It's living the Christian life with the word, therefore. So having said all that, let's go back to 1 Peter. He's about to give us some commands, some things to do, but the basis of these commands is understanding and knowing God's work in our lives. Let's go back to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this translation, it says, preparing your minds for action. Maybe your translation says, girding up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Well, back then during these times, people would wear a, a, a loincloth. This was a long cloth that would go uh, all the way down to the ground to your feet. So if a person needed to suddenly run, they would roll up the loincloth, hold it at their waist, and start running. This is what it means in verse 13, to prepare your minds for action. In the same way someone would roll up that loincloth in order to move quickly, Peter says, prepare your minds for action, to think, to be on alert. Of course, in the Gospels, Jesus told us to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And in verse 13, Peter tells us also to be sober-minded. Being sober-minded means that we have a clear head, that we think reasonably, that we are steady and consistent 
and in our thoughts. You know, one of the things that people have asked me about over the past few years um, are, you know, some conspiracy theories that they, they read online or maybe they see on social media. Even for some Christians, this has sort of become an obsession. Uh, it's something they always want to discuss. And so from time to time, someone will send me a link and ask me what I think. And usually, I say the same thing. I said, well, this could be true or this could be false, but it doesn't change our mission and the world. Our mission remains the same. The Bible already told us we live in an evil and fallen world, so we shouldn't be surprised when evil things happen. Instead, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in this world. You know, I think about the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. And if you've read this story of Daniel, there was an actual government conspiracy against him. They made things happen in order that he would be thrown in the lion's den. So this was real. There was a real plot against his life. But what did Daniel do when he found out about it? Did he go home and post on social media how there was this new political conspiracy, everybody should get ready for war? Did he go on Instagram Live and complain about the king? Did he call his friends and say, bro, there's stuff going on that, that, that just isn't fair. I'm such a victim. Is that what Daniel did? No. He hears about the threat and goes home and does what he normally did. He got on his knees facing Jerusalem and prayed. He did it three times a day just as his custom was. You know, it's good to be aware of, the, of what's going on in the world around us, but we are called to be sober-minded, clear-headed. The end of verse 13 says that we should set our hope fully on the grace of Christ. In other words, the Bible calls us to be people who are full of hope, not full of panic. The Bible warns us this, this world could be a dark place. But it also reminds us that no matter how dark the world gets, the light of Christ will overcome it. So let me ask you a question this morning. In your online communities, in your group chats, or on social media, are you sober-minded? Do you spread fear and panic, or do you spread hope? Is your hope fully set on Jesus? Do you remind people that no matter what happens, God is still on his throne, that God is still in control, and no matter how much darkness there is in the world, it will not overcome the light. Therefore, because of what God has done, therefore, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on Christ. Verse 14 as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, Peter starts with the knowing. And then he talks about the doing. He says, remember who you are and remember who you were. You're not the same person you were before knowing 
Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've been born again before knowing Jesus. You were lost. You were ignorant about the things that please God. But now you are children of God in Christ. And that leads me to my second point from the text. And that is be like your father. Be like your father. You have a father in heaven who is holy. Therefore, as his children, be holy in all that you do. Live as your heavenly father has called you to live. He is holy. Therefore, be holy. Start with knowing what is true. Then go out and live that truth. You know, when children are little and even later in life, they copy or imitate their parents. Sometimes there's things I don't realize I do until I watch my kids and, and see them uh, copying me. In the same way, as the children of God, you are called to be like your heavenly Father. You are called to avoid sin and pursue righteousness. Why should you be holy? Because God is holy and you're called to reflect him. So what does being holy look like in a moment of temptation? Definitely this week, all of us are going to experience temptation. So what does it look like to be holy this week? Well, let's imagine you're in a situation this week and you're tempted to sin. You're tempted not to be holy, let's say. Again, I would say the best thing to do, the best place to start is to go back to what you know, go back to what you know to be true. You know that God is holy. You know that sin doesn't please him. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus came to set you free from sin. He died for your sins so that you wouldn't be punished. He sacrificed for you. He loved you so much that he gave his life to set you free from slavery to sin. And through his power, through his strength, you can overcome this temptation to sin. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You can resist the devil and submit to God. God is faithful, and he will never let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so you can endure it. He'll provide the way out. In other words, it's God who does it. It's not about trying harder. It's about being who you already are in Christ, trusting in his power, working through you. God wouldn't give you a task that he has not already equipped you to do. In other words, he's given you all the resources you need to be holy. He's given everything you need in this life for holiness. I think the bigger question is, do you want to be holy? God can help you be holy, but is that something you actually desire? Are you willing to lay down that habit? Are you willing to lay down that lifestyle? Are you willing to lay down that sin? Or, as Peter says here, would you rather be conformed to the old passions? Are you content to go back to your old ways? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live in the reality of your new family in Christ. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
Peter reminds the believers of who God is. Yes, God is your father, but we also know from the word that God is also the judge. Now, when we think about God, the judge, typically we think about final judgment. You know, this is the judgment we find at the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation. This is when the Lamb's book of life is opened. And of course, we as believers have nothing to fear in, our, in the final judgment, right? Our names are written in the book of life, not in pencil, which can be erased, but in ink permanently. And because of that, we will be declared not guilty. But for those who have rejected Jesus, the Bible says they will be judged according to their sins and experience the wrath of God and be cast down in the lake of fire. It's terrifying. You know, make no mistake about it. You can cheat on your taxes and get away with it. You can cheat on an exam and get away with it. Maybe you can even cheat on your spouse and get away with it. But you can't cheat God. Judgment Day is coming for us all. And the question that day is not how many good things you've done versus how many bad things you've done. The question is, did you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you clothed with his righteousness? Are you covered by his blood? If the answer is yes, the Bible says you have nothing to fear. But if the answer is no, the Bible says you will be condemned. That's real. It's not a game. And my prayer for all of us here is that our names are already in the Lamb's book of life. And today, if you know that your name isn't in that book, with all my heart, I urge you to trust Jesus as Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be slaved from slavery to sin, but you will also be saved from final judgment. So that's final judgment, which most of us know about. But I don't think here Peter is talking about final judgment, even if, even if he is. He, it's possibly could be. I think what Peter is talking about here is the so-called family judgment we find in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, and in Romans 14. It's called the family judgment because the judgment isn't about whether or not someone is in the family of God. That's not a question. They're in the family. What's the judgment then? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 says that when Christ returns, we will appear before his judgment seat and we'll give an account for our lives, the things that we did and the things that we said. And anything we did or said with bad motivations, the Bible in, in, in 1 Corinthians says, will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But anything we did for the Lord will live on like gold, silver, and precious stones. One author says, the Greek word used here carries the meaning to judge in order to find something good. So God will search into the motives of our ministry. He'll examine our hearts, but he assures us that his purpose is to glorify himself in our lives and ministries. So Peter reminds them, and he reminds us, that God is our father, but that he is also the judge. And that leads me to my next point this morning. 
And that is, God is your father. He's not your bro. God is your father, not your bro. I've said this before. The Bible says that he is our heavenly father, but he's not your bro. He said, the Bible says he is your friend, but he is not our peer. He's our father. He's our loving father, but he's worthy of our honor, respect, and praise. And this verse, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. But this fear is connected to being in awe and reverence of God. You know, usually when we think about fear, we think about being afraid of something or running away from it. But when the Bible talks about fearing God, it means recognizing who he is in awe and in reverence, to stop and look at him and wonder. Book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. You know, one way that's helpful for me to think about this is, is when I think about uh, my kids. So I love my kids. I, I love joking with them. I love spending time with them. I have a relationship with them. But we are not equals, right? I am the father, and they are my children. When they need to be disciplined, I discipline them. We're never going to be equals. I will always be their father. They will always be my children. Therefore, they should have a respect for me, seek to honor me in the same way that I seek to honor and respect my parents. I would never call my dad bro or treat him like a bro, even though we have a really great relationship. The reason I say that is I think our understanding of who God is has a direct effect on our holiness. If you think of God as your bro, then it would be really hard to also have a strong theology of God's holiness and of sin. In the same way, some believers struggle with seeing God as their loving father, and they have a hard time believing and understanding God's grace. Earlier this week, I was reading a, a, a Christian blog and they were responding to the question of whether or not um, there should be coffee uh, in the sanctuary. There should be coffee in the church house. Of course, we have a coffee shop uh, uh, where we meet. Um, but the author said, look, it's not about having coffee in the sanctuary. It's not about rules. It's about reverence. The heart of the matter, he says, is the absence of an existential, ongoing, terrifying, shocking, awe-inspiring, trembling, mouth-shutting, comforting, safe, satisfying encounter with the majesty and mercy of the great I am who I am. He says, yes, absolutely we serve a God who will meet us at home in our pajamas. And there's no problem with coffee in the sanctuary as long as we have a deep and full picture of who God is, as long as we know and remember and can feel the weight of his glory. I think if you have a low view of God, you're probably going to have a low view of holiness. But if you have a deep reverence for the Lord, as it says in Philippians 2, I believe you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling and reverence for our Heavenly Father. 
Therefore, because all that is true, therefore, conduct yourselves with fear of God. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter takes a break from the doing and goes back to the knowing. He goes back to what happened at salvation. And of course, verse 19 is full of Old Testament and Old Covenant significance. He goes back to the Passover, back when Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel go. The Lord told Moses and Aaron to tell Israel that each household should take a lamb. But it had to be a perfect lamb. There could be no blemish and no imperfection on the lamb. It needed to be a perfect sacrifice. And the blood of that lamb was placed over the door frames. And later that night, God would bring judgment on Egypt for their sins. But wherever the lamb's blood was on the doorframe, the Lord would pass over that house. This is why it was called Passover. There would be no judgment on the house. Instead, there would be mercy. In the same way, when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in him, we are covered by his blood. We're covered by his sacrifice on the cross. He is our substitute. He is our lamb. And the Lord passes over us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And here Peter says the Lamb of God was the perfect sacrifice without blemish, without perfection. Jesus was human like us, but he never sinned. Therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice. And to that we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And Peter says that Jesus didn't stay in the ground, but God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Peter says this wasn't a plan that happened randomly, but this was a plan from the foundation of the world. How can you be holy as God is holy? By going back to the knowing, by thinking about the glory of the wonder of the cross, by beholding and treasuring the Lamb of God who took away your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. Look at verse 21 with me one more time. It says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Through the person and work of Christ, we have faith, we have hope. You know, it's often said that in the Apostle John's writings, he has this theme of love. And then in the Apostle Peter's writing, or uh, Paul's writings, he has this theme of faith. But that for the Apostle Peter, his theme is constantly hope. And it's true. Already to this point, he's mentioned the word hope three times, that we are born again to a living hope in Christ, to set our minds fully on hope, that our hope is in our risen Lord. You know, this world can be a cynical and dark place, and you can look around and see a lot of people today without hope. But we are called to be the light of the world. We have, a living of, we have a living hope, therefore we should be people of hope. 
As I asked earlier, do you spread hope to those around you? Or do you spread fear, panic, and cynicism? Be a person of hope. You have a living hope. Therefore, share that hope in a world that desperately needs it. So what does Peter say a holy person looks like? I didn't see a description of an old man with a long beard who's sitting on the floor. That doesn't seem to be how you're supposed to be holy and set apart. It doesn't seem to be anything about your appearance. No, it's not about the outside. It's about what's inside. It's about being sober-minded and steady. It's about letting go of our old ways before knowing Christ. It's about living with reverence and awe and amazement of our great God. And it's about holding up our hope in Christ and all things, no matter how dark it gets. That's what a holy person looks like. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter if you have a beard or not. Doesn't matter if you sit on the floor or stand up. What matters is living in the reality of being a member of God's family. You don't need anything physically to stand out or to be set apart. Rather, remember God's work in your life. Remember Christ's work on the, on the cross. Start with the knowing, and the doing will flow out through you. So tonight, before you fall asleep, be holy. Tomorrow at work, be holy. Tuesday at school, be holy. Wednesday at home, be holy. Thursday when you're online, be holy. Friday when you're at the store buying something, be holy. Saturday when you're hanging out with your friends, be holy. Next Sunday when we gather here together again by God's grace, be holy. God wouldn't call you to do something that he has not equipped you to do. He's given you all the resources to be holy. So be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward to lead us in the song of response to God's word. And as we sing, we're going to have a time of invitation like usual. If God is working on your heart this morning, if God is uh, working on your heart through his spirit, through his word, we want to help you and, and pray for you. This is an opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. You know, and this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. I invite you to come forward. We'd love to, to pray for you and share the good news of how to follow Christ more. Or maybe this morning you're looking at your life, and if you're honest with yourself, you don't see a lot of holiness. Instead, you see the old patterns and the old habits. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you. There is hope for you in Christ. Or maybe there's something else God is dealing with you this morning. However God is leading you, this is a time for you to, be res to, to respond. Jerry and I will be here in the front to meet you as you come. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have done in our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unblemished lamb who took away the sins of the world and took away our sin. Help us to live our lives in light of what you've done. Help us to be holy as you are holy. And God, thank you for the hope that we always have in you. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.